I encourage you to come back tonight as we gather together, Lord's Day, both morning and evening. Um, I know there's lots of good things on television, and who knows, there might even be a basketball game for all I know, but there isn't? Okay. Well, that's good. Um, Anyhow, I do encourage you to come back. Tonight we will again turn to prayer and to studying the Word, but more importantly than that, uh, we will turn to one another and bear one another's burdens and encourage one another while it is yet day. This morning we are going to enter into our fourth week of the study of Ezra and Nehemiah, and so I ask you to turn this morning to again to the second chapter, but this time the last three verses of Ezra chapter 2, verses 68 to 70. Ezra chapter 2, verses 68 to 70. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Some of the heads of fathers' households, when they arrived at the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, offered willingly for the house of God to restore it on its foundation. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for the work 61,000 gold drachmas and 5,000 silver minas and 100 priestly garments. Now the priests and the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their cities and all Israel in their cities. This is the word of God and it is eternally true. Now you remember that last Lord's Day we asked the question in Ezra chapter 2, why this seemingly meaningless genealogy, 60 some verses of it in this chapter, and you look above the text that I read and you just see line after line after line of names and numbers. Why was this placed here? And from Scripture, we heard the answer that the genealogies of Ezra 2 and Nehemiah 7 are proofs of paternity. They are proofs of the blood descent of the people of God from the children of Israel who were the inheritors of all God's promises. And we also saw that lacking proof of bloodline, some among those returning from exile and reoccupying the promised land, it says, quote, were considered unclean and excluded from the priesthood, unquote, and were denied the privileges which were only for those who were, again quoting, able to give evidence of their father's households and their descendants, whether they were of Israel, unquote. You look at verse 59, and you'll see where this is taken from. It lists names, and then it says, but they were not able to give evidence of their father's households and their descendants, whether they were of Israel. And then verse 62, these searched among their ancestral registration, but they could not be located. Therefore, they were considered unclean. And so the true sons of Israel were the direct descendants of the promise God had given to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. These were the sons of Israel, those who could prove that descendancy by their genealogy. They were truly Israel. But without denying that God has chosen in the main to follow bloodlines, is God willing to allow his work to be contained within a bloodline? 
And is his blessing always constrained by that bloodline? Is that bloodline such an absolute boundary that God himself unerringly observes and is limited by that bloodline? In other words, are we able simply to proclaim to the world that all those who are descended from Israel are Israel? That all those with bloodlines able to be traced back to God's covenant patriarchs are always and forever the inheritors of God's covenant promises. That all those who are beyond the boundaries of God's covenant patriarchs are always and forever beyond the boundaries of God's covenant promises. In other words, is the work of God within families and bloodlines such that the boundaries of physical descent are always and completely the boundaries of God's salvation? Well, the answer is no. There are many places in Scripture that show us, again, that although it is the normal method for God to work through fathers and families, from father to son to son, he is never limited to this method of covenant-keeping such that he must observe its boundaries as his own boundaries of the work of grace. Now, you're going to find yourself wanting to escape the pressure. And it's our tendency always to go too far in one or the other direction. And we have all learned the fact that since we're engrafted into God's covenant community, that means God's done working with families. And so every time you bring up families to evangelicals, we just get very uncomfortable because we've learned that Abraham's family is no longer the, the strict parameter of the covenant community. And that is true. But as I said last week, we have to get both things Properly, Last week, the issue of God's continuing to this day to make promises to and to work within blood families. But then, this week, the many places in Scripture that show us that God is never limited to this method of covenant keeping so that he has to observe these boundaries as the absolute limits of his work in us. God is sovereign. And if we look into, for instance, another genealogy, look at Matthew chapter 1 with me, please. We know what its great theme is, don't we? Its great theme is the genealogy of, it starts out with, what? First verse, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abram. And as we go down we see in verse 17 to the Messiah and now the birth of Jesus. So what you see in verse 17 is all the generations from Abraham to David, from David to Babylon, and from Babylon to the Messiah. So here we have the genealogy of Jesus Christ. It starts with Adam, and you see all the names that are brought in. And these are blood names, right? But are they only blood names? Well, predominantly they're blood names. But are they only blood names? And the answer is absolutely not. Because if you look at verse 3, you'll see in verse 3 it says this, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by what? By Tamar. Who was what? What was Tamar? She was a Canaanite woman. She was not a part of the blood descent. Although she was grafted in. So now we can speak of her as part of the blood descent, which is what the genealogy does. What else? Well, look at verse 5, and you'll see. 5 says this, 
Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Now, who was Rahab? Rahab was the harlot of Jericho. She was not a part of the covenant community. Again, she was clomped on. She was grafted in. And she became a part of the family, the covenant family. And then Boaz, it keeps on going in verse 5. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth. And what was Ruth? She was a Moabitess. She was of the family of Moabite people. She was, again, not a part of the covenant community, and yet she was grafted in, and from her comes Obed and Jesse. And so God is sovereign, and as it is his prerogative to graft Gentiles onto the root of the covenant community, and we're all here acknowledging that, so it is also his prerogative to turn his back on those who are Abraham's descendants, most famously... Esau, whom God says that he hates. When God wills, he may turn his back on those who are descended from the patriarchs and at the same time lift up his countenance upon those who are not descendants of the patriarchs, who have no part of his covenant promises. Again, look with me at Romans chapter 9. And we see God's sovereignty here. Romans 9 beginning with verse 6. It says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. And so many of those of us who are Bible believers today say, aha, see there, it says it's not the children of the flesh. And so God doesn't work through flesh. Non sequitur, doesn't work, illogical. It's not saying that God doesn't work through the flesh. It's saying that simply because you are of the flesh does not mean that you are of the Spirit. And so you you have to read Scripture properly. And it takes work. If you sweat to become a good basketball player, you're going to sweat to become a student of the Word of God. And it continues and it says... For this is the word of promise, verse 9, At this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. In other words, no question about the blood lineage here. Now, one man, that's the blood lineage. Twins within her, all right? And then what? For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so it can't be dependent on some inclination of the will of the twins, right? They're still in the womb. It says, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. God is sovereign. Well, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. And this is always our inclination. We say, well, that's not fair. They're in the womb. They're twins. They're both the bloodline of Israel. God has shown through circumcision that he is going to make that bloodline his primary method of working. Again, neither of them have made any choices that are moral in content. 
You know, that's not fair. How can God make a choice while they're still in the womb? And this is because our constant inclination is to think that God should conform himself to the United States of America's political ideology, namely what we consider to be fairness. But God is not fair. God does not have to comport himself according to American prejudices of what constitutes fairness. I've said before that I remember listening to a tape in which a preacher said that he wanted to teach his children that God isn't fair. And so one time he came home from a business trip and he had like five children. He brought one of them a gift and he told the other four that God is not fair. And you might think, well, that guy's wacko. I hope his wife taught him how better to be a father in the future. But if he got across to them that God can love and his love is 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 beautiful, and yet that love can make distinctions even among Christians because some of us have the gift of singing and some don't. And oh, how sad for those who don't have the gift of singing. And you think, well, that's trivial. And I say, no, it's not trivial. Those of us that have the gift of singing know what a gift it is, know how it leads our heart into the worship of Jesus Christ. Think of those poor people who are never able to join their voices with ours and to hear the harmony and the melody and to be able to see how the unity under Christ in worship comes out of this beautiful gift of music. And so God gives some of us the gift of music and others he does. And they're autonal. And, and those of you that see colors, you should feel sorry for me because I'm colorblind. Really seriously colorblind. So every time you see colors, you should think, God loves Tim Bailey, and God loves me, but how come God didn't give Tim the gift of colors? Now, I always think of this whenever people are playing the victim trip. You know, I think, you know, if only colorblind people would rise up. <laughs> and you think I'm kidding, and you're laughing. But let's just play this out a little bit. You realize that colorblind people, at least people of my severity... When a light is blinking, we don't know if it's blinking red or yellow. All right? So why are you all oppressing us? By having that be what determines, you know, like Land's End, when I used to shop at an outlet store, the way they'd make us see the difference between the 25% and the 50% and the 75% off was we, were wheels that were different colors. Again, they're oppressing us. Okay, you can laugh now. <laughs> What's my point? My point is, once you start keeping track of the ways that God has made distinctions among his creatures, even within the church, within those who call Christ their Lord and Savior, and you think, well, fairness means no distinctions, because that's what every American is taught to think, you're going to have a hard time keeping track of God's unfairness. And once we all start playing the victim, there's no end to this. We all have interminable ways that we're victimized. I mean, you know, think of those people who are having to waste their lives caring for their elderly parents right now. You know, day after day after day, 
Nina's over with her mother. Think of Al Pyle. Day after day after day, Al Pyle's in his home. God's not fair. Why should a man have to be in his home caring for his wife with Alzheimer's? You know? Or how about some of you that live in a university community? You can't talk about classes and academic work. That's not fair. Why didn't God place you in Omaha in the feedlots? And what about those of you without hair? You know, you're going bald. Is that fair? See, I pick all these trivial things because you're willing to go along with me because we all know it doesn't really matter whether or not you you have hair, especially for people like me who have it. (laughs) And so you all laugh and it's okay. We can make these distinctions and, and God's honor isn't at stake. And then... We move into the more serious things, like the way that God gives different gifts to the church. And some gifts are glamorous, and some gifts are really menial. You know, they're not honored. And then we get a little more uptight, and we think, look, if I think I have the gift of teaching, I have the gift of teaching. I ought to be allowed to teach. Or if I have the gift of music and, and, and should be able to choose what music we sing. And then we move into the gift of grace, the gift of God declaring that this one was born in Zion. And maybe someone who wasn't born in Zion, maybe someone has no blood connection to Zion. And at the same time as he does that, another one is not born in Zion. You cannot escape the direct statement of Scripture in this text in Romans. You cannot escape it. It says, while yet in the womb... One was loved, the other was hated. You can't get away from that. God makes distinctions. He is sovereign. He does what he wants. Immediately, your response is, that's not fair. Good. You're playing right along with it. And Scripture has anticipated your evil heart and it immediately answers you. And it says, may it never be. In other words, it says to us, basically, shut your mouth and worship this God. This God. Not a God that's an idol. If you have a God who doesn't make distinctions in the womb between two twins, one that he loves, the other he hates, you have an idol. I don't care how many other people are idolaters with you. I don't care what magazines are written towards idolaters like you. It is an idol if it denies the direct teaching of Scripture and if everybody says to one another, well, that's not fair, but I'm a good Christian and I honor the Word of God and and different people disagree over this stuff. No, it doesn't work that way. You you can't look at this text and think, well, what it really means is as soon as they came out of the womb, one of them hit the other in the face. And so God looked and said, aha, got you. You know, that's the one that I hate. And you poor little thing crying there because you got a fist in the face. I love you. That's what a mother would do. God isn't a mother. God's a father. And God wants it to be absolutely clear to us that there was absolutely nothing about Jacob that commended him to God. And if you watch his life, my daughter Michael is nodding her head right now. You look at Jacob's life. I defy you to show me how even a fond mother would choose Jacob.
And so what's going on here? Well, keep going. It says, what shall we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? May it never be! Exclamation mark. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. doesn't sound like a consensus builder, does it? I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And brothers and sisters, if you don't get it, let me make it clear to you. If God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, that means God is making a distinction. Do you understand that? I will do-do-do-do. I will do-do-do-do. That must mean that there's an I won't do-do-do-do, and I won't do-do-do-do. All right? It's implicit. It's implied. It's present even though it's not spoken of. You cannot have somebody who is being shown mercy without having someone who isn't being shown mercy. We all want to do these calisthenics to avoid the obvious teaching of Scripture that if God says in His Word that the only way we can love is because we have ourselves first been loved, that the only way that we can do anything good is because God puts us in, in us. It's a logical necessity that there are those who cannot do good because God has not put good in them. Do you see this? I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And there will be those upon whom I will not have mercy and I will not show compassion. And I'm not adding anything to Scripture. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs. And boy, we believe in the will, don't we? We worship the will, you know. The little engine that could, or the little locomotive that could, or whatever. What's that little story that could? <laughs> huh? Or how about the A.A. Milne um, poem that was quoted this morning in our Sunday school class? The king said to the queen, and the queen said to the, you know, will, you know, all I wanted was a little butter for my bread. It does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, in case we didn't get it so far, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. And so then he has mercy on whom he desires and he... What's the next word? He hardens. He hardens. He has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Now, why am I preaching this in Ezra chapter 2? Because it's our constant temptation to make an error of going too far in one or the other direction. And what we want to say is, well, all right, here it's clear that God does what he wants. And so I'm not going to pray for my children and I'm not going to train my children and I'm not going to believe that God will work in my blood descendant line. Because after all, if this is how God works, what's the sense of a man willing and working? You know? Well, 
Again, there are the genealogies. There are the promises for fathers to their children. So what are you going to do? You're going to say, well, if he ever doesn't work that way, I'm never going to look to him to look to work that way. Do you understand that? It's, it's again, it's a non sequitur. God has the ability of clomping in the parts that are not blood descendants. He clomps in Rahab. Okay? He clomps in every one of us here who is not a Jew. Alright? But he still is sovereign in saying that the promise is to you and to your children. And then he says to all those he'll draw. Yeah, that is always the context within which we understand his blood promises. And he can clomp in and he can cut out any time he wants. And isn't this the prerogative that we have as parents anyhow of a household? Can't a father and mother get together and decide that because a son like Tim, when I was young, is rebelling against the authority over that home, namely the authority of Jesus Christ and His Word, my father cut me off. He said to me, Tim, you're going to leave this home because you're not living for Jesus Christ. Okay? That's my father's prerogative. I say, yeah, but I'm not your son anymore. You know, and he says, hey, you know, grow up. You know, you made your choices. And if my God is not your God, this home is not your home. Yeah, but my mama gave birth to me. (laughs) And he says, hey, I am a man under authority and I will exercise my authority according to the authority of my father. Yeah, but, yeah, but. And doesn't a father and mother, don't they also have the prerogative of looking at somebody like Brianne and saying, this, this woman is going to be our daughter? And taking her in their home and clomping her in. And does this mean that families no longer exist and mothers no longer give birth and bloodlines can no longer be traced? No. But God works out even in the little microcosms of our family existences, pictures of how He works in eternity. And there are children of this church, children of godly parents, who to this day are defiers of God. And there are children who belong to the families of this church who have no blood connection to their parents. Think of the Johnsons and their children. Think of the Hesses who have had... How many children now have they had? Over the years, Caleb, please tell me. How many? At least 20. And do we say, well, obviously blood means nothing because, you know, look, that's a family, you know, just families, whatever you make it. No, no, no. Both blood descent matters and God is the ultimate one who decrees the bloodline. Do you understand that? Because ultimately it's a him. Now, it's very interesting. You've got this genealogy, but look at verse 68. Look at the little word that begins verse 68. And this is the payoff. The little word that begins verse 68 is the word what? 
some. Some. Now, there are a couple of arguments about this, about this word. Some think that this word is indicating that there were different methods that different people used to support the building of the temple. And they push us forward to chapter 7. Look at, with me at chapter 7, beginning with verse 70. And they say, well, look, this is the context in which to understand chapter 2, verse 68. And look at verse 70, it says, Some from among the heads of fathers' households gave to the work the governor gave. And then verse 71, Some of the heads of fathers' houses gave into the treasury of the work that which the rest of the people gave. So you see, what's going on here is the word some is used to make a distinction in the various levels of commitment and the various details of their giving. You know, uh, some gave... Uh, trees to plant on the property, some gave money to purchase the, the, the labor of the construction workers, you know, some, some did different things. I don't believe, though, that that's the context and the understanding of verse 68 in Ezra chapter 2, because here it's not making a distinction between what different people did, but here it's saying that there were those who did give for the building of the temple. But it wasn't everyone. It was some. Some did it. Some of the heads of fathers' households, when they arrived at the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem, offered willingly for the house of God to restore it on its foundation. And you see, if you walk along with me here, what we have here is a visible manifestation again of this principle. Think about back in Persia, all right? Here are all these exiles are. And there, many of them are living the good life. Many of them have had much wealth come to them during this time. It's not been exactly a time of suffering. But there were those among them who had a heart that ached for the promised land, who missed Jerusalem, who missed the temple. And we'll see this more as we get into a little deeper into the book. Uh, I think it's even next week. All right, They missed it, and so when they were offered an opportunity to go back to Jerusalem, they went. All right, And they often had to turn themselves away from family members, away from wealth, away from businesses, away from property, away from uh, orchards that they had planted. All right, And they went back to Jerusalem. And we think, well, certainly, if anything is an indication of the work of the Holy Spirit, it's that they you know, pulled themselves out of that land. They went back to Jerusalem. And then we get to Jerusalem, and what happens? The time has come for them to begin to support the work. And we read, some. And we think, wait, 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 wait. Everyone there made a sacrifice. Why does some... It must be that there were those among the, the exiles who returned who really didn't want the temple to be built, right? But what on earth did they go back there for if they didn't want the temple to be built? Well, the answer is not that they didn't want the temple to be built. The answer is that they, as we always have excuses as to why others ought to do it. You know, who will help me bake the bread? You know, not I, <laughs> not I, said the 
Taylor said it, but he won't say it out loud. Said the frog? Oh, said the fly. No, I still didn't get it right. Anyhow, I will, said the little red hen. And so you have here the some that will and the some that won't. Now, if you think through the some that wouldn't, that were not willing to give, why weren't they willing to give? Well, first of all, there's an obvious answer when we look at the fact that Cyrus himself sent an abundance of uh, wealth back with them to see to the work. And so you look at Cyrus and you think all the wealth of the world was accruing to his accounts at the time. And so what's the point of anybody like me helping to build the temple when Cyrus has sent all his wealth? And so you get complacent because look at the wealth that Cyrus sent. And then you look at the people around you and you think, well, you know, uh, John Brown has lots of money and he won't miss any of it. You know, and he really ought to bear the burden of building it because what am I? I'm a student, you know. And so some gave willingly and others didn't. They had great reasons, you know. Look at Cyrus and, and you know, look at John Brown and, you know, I really can't do much, so there's not really much sense in it. And so guess what? You weren't one of those referred to as some who gave willingly. And it's interesting. If you look in Scripture, again and again and again, when the religious life of the people of God is provided for, it is provided for by free will offerings. It's not provided for by taxes. God always wants his house to be provided for by willing hearts. And if you go through the Old Testament, you'll see the theme again and again and again where it talks about those who are willing. Last night, I went over and met uh, Neil Alberson at First Methodist Church, and he took me into the sanctuary. The storm had just blown through. It was a very sweet, warm, humid night. And we were standing there in the sanctuary, and he turned the lights on in the chancel area. And what a beautiful sanctuary. Uh, wood in the ceiling and and the choir and the baptismal font and very warm, very, very warm. And Neil said to me, you know something? He said, the day that this sanctuary was dedicated, it was paid for. And I thought, you know, eat your heart out. <laughs> Can you imagine that? They built that sanctuary and the people gave willingly so that when it was completed, it was paid for. No doubt. And you look back at that time and you think, what godly people gave money for the building of First Methodist Sanctuary? Now again, it's our temptation to think, well, you know, what a good that did. You know, every church declines. You know, if you're smart, you'll only build your own home. And then you think, well, how many homes are divorced? And so what's the point of building your own home? It's very interesting. It was paid for. And God works through his people, causing their hearts to well up in gratitude to him and causing them to give willingly, sacrificially, for the building of his house. And some from among the heads of father's households, they what did they do? They gave willingly for the work. 
when we go to the time of David and we see David preparing for the building of the temple, David has gotten a bad conscience because he has an absolutely glorious house, a palace, and yet he sees the disparity between how he's provided for himself and how God has provided for in his home. And so David gets everything in ready. He, he gets the work, the, the, the vision, and then the money. And here's what he says as he has prepared all of this. Um, then King David said to the entire assembly, I'm going to read, don't bother turning there, from First Chronicles chapter 29. He said to the entire assembly, My son Solomon, whom alone God has chosen, is still young and inexperienced, and the work is great, for the temple is not for man, but for the Lord God. Now, with all my ability, I have provided for the house of my God the gold for the things of gold, and the silver for the things of silver, and the bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, and wood for the things of wood, onyx stones and inlaid stones, stones of antinomy, and stones of various colors and all kinds of precious stones and alabaster in abundance. Moreover, in my delight in the house of my God, the treasure I have of gold and silver, I give to the house of my God over and above all that I have already provided for the holy temple. Does this sound like a man whose arm is twisted behind his back? In my delight. <laughs> Namely, 3,000, and he goes on. And then he says at the end of verse 5, he says, Who then is willing to consecrate himself this day to the Lord? Okay, I did it. Now, who else is willing to do it? And he actually lists how much he's given. All right? He says, okay, now, those of you who are here, who also is willing to consecrate himself? And then it says in verse 9, then the people rejoiced because they had offered so willingly, for they made their offering to the Lord with a whole heart. And King David also rejoiced greatly. They had a party. It was joyful. And then in verse 12, what do they say? They start a prayer. It says, verse 10, David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you and you rule over all and in your hand is power and might and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now therefore our God we thank you and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this for what? All things come from you and from your hand we have given. Now you wonder what the connection is with the long discussion of predestination is the word that we use about it usually. Well, here's the connection. Why did they give? It says they gave willingly. Why did they give? Because they were willing? Why were they willing? Because God had put it in their heart. So even in this little word, some... Verse 68 begins with, here we have a picture of the fact that God moves some hearts and not others. And he moves them to do what he himself first did through them. And it's not in contradiction to speak of them having a will and using it. 
willingly. You say, well, if God did it, it wasn't their will that did it. No, no, no. There's no competition between the will of man and the will of God. God orders predestination in such a way that you choose. And that you choose because he chose you. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. And yet choose you this day whom you will serve. All right? Some gave willingly. All right? They had a will, they gave willingly, and God had given to them and had prompted their hearts to give willingly. He had moved their spirits, so they gave willingly. So what's the application to us? Well, obviously there's an application. We should silence ourselves when we dislike the method of God's working among men. God is sovereign. He will do what he wants to. And if you don't want that kind of God, then you want an idol. If God is a function of our limited pea brains and the way we have a concept of fairness, then he's not worth worshiping. We can have the Supreme Court. If you want fairness according to man, get the Supreme Court and they give you Roe v. Wade. But if you want God, then worship the God who's revealed in Scripture and he'll shake you to your feet, to the core of your existence. And he will tell you that you didn't choose him, he chose you. All right? But the other application is sweet. It is that if you have given willingly for the building of a church at Church of the Good Shepherd, it is an indication of the work of the Holy Spirit within you. And ain't it nice to know that God has chosen to work through you? Isn't that sweet? You don't think of it that way. You think, well, I, you know, prayed about it, and then my wife and I argued about it, and then we gave, and I'm glad we did it, but boy, it was hard. No, 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 no. Some of the heads of fathers' households gave willingly. And so God has made himself great through us. Unbelievable. Personally, let me say, the amount of money that you have given. I take delight in you. And that's fitting that I do that. Because David did it. And yes, you've given some of you more, some of you less, because some of you have the ability to give more and some less. I take delight in all of you. Now, if you're new, you have the opportunity to give willingly. The point of this sermon is not to get you to give. We've already had tons of money given. We're not sitting here crying. But what a wonderful privilege to have the Spirit of God work through us in this way. And so I rejoice just like David did. I rejoice. The Spirit of God is at work through you. And what a privilege it is to be used in this way. Let's pray.